The views and opinions expressed by contributors on the Spoon River Gothic podcast are their own and do not necessarily reflect the position of the host. Material heard on the Spoon River Gothic podcast is intended for adult listeners. This podcast deals with mature topics that may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised. This is Spoon River Gothic, narrative of a double homicide. Home is a name, a word. It is a strong one. Stronger than magician ever spoke, or spirit ever answered to, in the strongest conjuration. Charles Dickens The multifamily home located at 365 South First Avenue in Canton, Illinois, was built in the year 1900. The property had four bedrooms and four bathrooms, split into four apartments, totaling 3,476 square feet of floor space. The home sat on a lot size of 0.46 acres, with a small yard out front and a larger one on the south side of the building, where a pair of railroad tracks bordered the property. The home had an enclosed porch, walk-in closets, an attic, and a full basement, and each apartment was composed of large rooms heated with radiators by a gas-powered boiler, a common patio out back for a grill, and a detached garage with alleyway access. The two-story home was of the folk Victorian style, typical from the 1870s until the 1910s, throughout the breadbasket of America. The ostentatious home designs of the Victorian era were inspired by the idea that everything should be beautiful rather than practical. At that time, it was the desire of the better to do to live in the Queen Anne Victorian, a style migrated from the United Kingdom to the eastern regions of the United States, where many of these homes were built thanks in part to the Industrial Revolution. But for those who were moving west, we needed simple and quick methods for building, with easy access to all lightweight, pre-cut lumber. Western settlers found an inexpensive way to get an iteration of their own Victorian home. Composed predominantly of wood, the folk Victorian was an architectural style relatively plain in its construction, but highly embellished with decorative trim. The architecture conveyed a distinct sense of luxury with its complex structure and ornate embellishments. A beauty to be enjoyed by the middle-class Americans of the era, who had found this more practical alternative to the Queen Anne, with its rounded towers, gables, and wide wraparound porches to provide shade on warm summer days. Windows were oversized, stretching from floor to ceiling to let in a cool breeze, and provide luxurious views onto green lawns and broad-limbed trees. The Victorian style was built with a more inventive, eclectic approach, with fundamental differences from its high-styled cousin, the Queen Anne. The style thrived at the turn of the century, and as the trend spread rapidly westward, thanks in large part to those innovations in woodworking tools, mass production, and the railroad system, along with prefabricated millwork such as posts, molding, and trim that had also become widely available, the materials for the home could be transported efficiently by rail to lumberyards, giving more people access, homeowners no longer limited to whatever local craftspeople could produce. Also, the folk Victorian style quickly became popular among the newly settled population, having relocated inland, homeowners looking for flexible, budget-friendly ways to embellish their existing houses. In fact, many homes classified as folk Victorian started out as simple folk houses, built in style typical to their region. But when the Victorian style took root, owners of these houses updated them with the new Victorian style trim on offer at nearly every lumber mill. 
and the same railroad system that carried millwork to the homeowners also benefited from the trend, with new depots, stations, and related buildings popping up with their own Florian style as the rail lines expanded, defining the region, class, and culture. The American Folk Victorian was within reach of the average citizen, typically smaller and simpler in design with plain roof lines, with profiles that were more symmetrical with only one front-facing gable, compared to the typical asymmetrical Queen Anne. And as with the home at 365 South First Avenue, those Victorian-style embellishments had been added to the basic form of the house, elaborations that set the house apart as a Folk Victorian, yet aligned with nearly every home along the tree-lined avenue in the heart of an all-American town. While inspired by the Queen Anne, the additions used on the home would have been concentrated on the gables and the ground floor front porch, quintessential by design, the most heavily decorated part of the house. This was the era when the classic American front porch really took off. While in 1993, when the unfortunate incident occurred, the front porch was enclosed. However, in the early 1900s, the porch would have been wide open with simple chamfered edge posts embellished with carvings and added details. These supports would have been enhanced with friezes above, balustrades between the posts, and intricately cut spandrels in the upper corners. The cornice lines, overhanging eaves, and gable ends would have been trimmed with bands of decorative millwork. Intricate window and door moldings would have been limited to straightforward header pediment, a streamlined approach, setting this folk Victorian apart from its British counterpart, though quite luxurious for the Midwest. The exterior of the home, clad in clapboard and shakes, would have boasted the exuberant polychrome color schemes typical of any Victorian-era home, unlike the grade white it would become. While all full Victorian homes have certain aspects in common, no two are exactly alike, and their individuality is a part of their charm. The home would have been built based on designs from plan books, architectural companies, and lumber mills at the time produced to help homeowners and builders gather ideas each book offering anywhere from a handful of plans to more than 100. But as thorough as these books were, they didn't always classify millwork in terms of styles, such as Queen Anne or Gothic Revival, and this would have made it harder for those choosing parts to get a look consistent with the high style of Victorian appearance. So when builders and homeowners added the millwork to the existing folk house, they would have had a wide range of trim, molding, and other detailed options to draw from. While some followed the plan book suggestions precisely, others mixed and matched from several books and worked from their own ideas. The results would have been strikingly unique in the hands of highly skilled craftspeople, and neighborly competition for the most elaborate house would have further driven creativity. As mills also sold complete packages of porch parts, millwork wasn't always included, and if so, it would not have been true to one particular style. Do-it-yourselfers and less skilled professional builders would have relied on these packages, resulting in an eclectic Victorian look as 365 South First had. More than just a decorative building, the home would have been a symbol of adaptability and self-expression, born of the growing industrial age, itself only a block west of an enormous manufacturing plant. Even as time and weather and hardship ate away at its delicate finishings and shallowed its carvings, as layer after layer of paint peeled with the sun, and as the front porches were entirely enclosed to the freshness of the Spoon River Valley air, learning to recognize the creative combination of simple structures and what ornate detailing remained upon this home would provide insight into that flourishing period in America's history. Cindy Nows, cleaning lady for the home's owner, Pauline Newcomb, 
arrived the morning the incident had occurred on the 13th of January 1993 and would have been hauling cleaning supplies from her hatchback across the ice-coated street. About the fierce sub-zero winds, she made sure to pause as she always had, to take a moment to appreciate the nuances of the home. A home she had always adored for its unique charm, even if such ornament had in fact faded over time. That pastime impression still quite meaningful to Cindy. But little did Cindy know, as she made her way up the slick drive on the north side of the lot, to sweep and clean Miss Newcomb's ground floor apartment in the full Victorian, that the old home would soon burst into flames, in only a matter of minutes. As the investigation into the arson and of the mysterious deaths of the bodies of mother and child found in the burnt-out apartment on the south-facing side of the home, Canton Daily Ledger photographer David Pickle would be in a single-prop airplane, high overhead, documenting the scene below with his camera. Peering down through the viewfinder, the home sat on a corner lot, bordered by those tracks as mentioned, which led eastbound to the now-shuttered International Harvester factory, which had sat in decay for nearly a decade. Sandwiched between the home's detached garage, which sat out back, and the factory grounds, was a salvage yard filled with heaps of rusty parts, itself divided by the garage by a small gravel alleyway that curved about the three-stall shed for the large lawn separating the Victorian from the tracks. Across those rusty tracks, a series of brick warehouse buildings, a steel Quonset hut, and a milk bottling plant, and oak and maple trees, shed of their leaves, had abounded the snowy plot, as they had all about the neighborhood and the greater community. Running parallel to the tracks ran Railroad Street, little more than a gravel access lane, bombarded with crater-sized potholes, pools iced over. Railroad Street crossed First Avenue for a gas station which sat on its own corner lot on Railroad and South Main just a block to the west. The tracks then led further westward on an endless route toward the hillier Spoon River Valley terrain, where true to nature, Queen Anne Victorians of the wealthier class stood in all of their glory. Head south from the home, down First Avenue, a bound past the small industrial area to the home's right, and houses grew smaller, humbler, more folk-like entirely void of ornament and gables, let alone second stories or high-pitched roofs, as the poverty rate increased, highly sanctioned off to this area. The highlight of this low part of town is a dairy dream, where petite high school girls in short white shorts offered soft serve to patrons on scorching summer days. Head east down any of these side streets while bypassing the IH factory grounds, and the residential neighborhoods also transformed from Victorian to classic, multi-level folk homes to split-level ranch houses, neighborhoods resembling more of a suburban aesthetic to that of the small rural town it was. This side of town provided groceries at Kroger's in a shake shack of its own. Head north up Main Street and one would quickly reach the town square, with its historic storefronts, Grand Opera House, and Soda Fountain Pharmacy, circling about a small park adorned with a bandstand, high-weaving flags, stars and stripes, and broad-limbed trees of its own. Continuing on this northern route led to a section of town that would also gradually modernize, with that quintessential suburban feel, prairie style, Lloyd Wright inspired, low-lying homes at one with the land, along cul-de-sacs and winding dead-end drives. Along the way to the greater reaches of town is a classic mid-century high school, elongated and stylized with a modern clock and simple lines that also appropriate the landscape. 
Upon reaching the edge of town, leaving a traditional Walmart store in Farm King in the rearview mirror, a vast countryside of prairie grass, pastures dotted with strip mine lakes, amongst frozen farmland nestled between deep wooded ravines, waters trickling downhill for creeks and rivers, and the Spoon River alike, in a vastness that generally portrays that breadbasket imagery, endless, yet iron land that stretches from Appalachia to the Rockies, more highly populated by livestock than mankind. About this central Illinois region, the idyllic land had long been carved out by retreating glaciers, a territory called the Spoon River Valley, and in its heart, a quaint rustic town, where once proud homes by now, the year 1993, had begun to more often than not, as wood warps, nails rust, and pitches begin to slope with an aching convulsion of a four-season land. These old wooden homes leaned slightly off-center, left and right, and as a suspected crime scene had been taped off and posted with guards, the town remained old, even at the end of a century, on the cusp of a new era, and what ghosts remained were left to speak out in what whispers were heard, for whoever was listening, looking, and searching for a clue. As David Pickle circled about overhead, clicking off frame by frame images below, investigators removed and examined debris from the room of origin. The home's interior was utterly blackened. The charm of the vintage cabinetry and chrome-edged vintage countertops had been gilded in a heavy layer of ash. Canine shepherds Watson and Tracer themselves worked from room to room, alerting specific spots. And Special Agents Bill Glover and Don Tankersley, Illinois State Fire Marshal Ted Anderson, Canton Fire Department Lieutenant John Stanko and ATF Special Agents John Maroka and Jack Maluli concentrated their examinations on a hide-a-bed within the room of origin, that room of death where the charred bodies had been found, as well as an adjacent area just inside the front door, where debris had been removed from the floor, and the investigators noted low, floor-level burning. The threshold charred indicated what they now believed to be an indication of the presence of a flammable liquid. All evidence gathered from the scene by the task force had been submitted to the Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms Forensic Science Laboratory in Rockville, Maryland, where within the forensics were discovered signs of gasoline on clothing and wood, in addition to hair samples retrieved from Donna Tompkins. Ethyl alcohol had also been identified. Meanwhile, other investigators from the CPD, DCI, and ATF concentrated their own efforts on other areas particularly in interviewing any and all witnesses that they could manage to muster up and track down. And on the 21st of January, 1993, David Haynes, trust officer for the National Bank of Canton and property manager of the old Folk Victorian, which the bank had let slide into a continual state of disrepair leading up to the fire, including perpetual gas leakage, was summoned to the Canton Police Department. While at the same time, in a clever ruse common amongst criminal investigations, ATF Special Agent Kenneth Kedzer and Investigator Gary Smith waited for David to leave his residence in his mustard yellow Toyota pickup before pulling into the lot of the apartment complex, but a block south of the station. Within a small two-bedroom apartment, Sarah Haynes put their two young children to bed early as the agent settled in. And before sitting down with their unexpected guests, who had arrived at her door at 6.29 p.m., Sarah offered a fresh pot of coffee, 
Surprised and uneasy, the mother and wife told the agents that she had met her husband at the National Bank in March of 85 or 86, as she could not precisely recall, and that the couple had been happily married for four years, adding that she had also worked at the National Bank before quitting to work at Interstate Brands in Peoria, the largest producer of baked goods in the nation, hence the breadbasket connotation. Sarah said she knew Donna as an acquaintance, but stated, You could say we were friends. She said that David and Donna had known each other since the first day her husband had moved to town, and that the two had briefly dated a few times, adding with confidence, but Dave decided she was not his type. Investigator Smith inquired if Sarah and David had ever babysat for Justine, and Sarah confirmed that they had, stating, We always told Donna we were willing to because we knew money was tight for her. She also said, when asked, that Donna never called their residence unless she was sick, adding that it was not unusual for bank employees to contact David at home if they could not make it to work. Investigator Smith then asked Sarah where David had been after work on Tuesday the 12th of January, the night before the fire. And Sarah said that she, her husband, and the two young children were at home having a birthday party for the youngest who had just turned one. And Dave watched the Indiana-Purdue game after the party, she said. She mentioned that she went to bed, yet advised, when asked, what time exactly? I'm sorry, I have a terrible memory. I don't recall. She said David most likely came to bed around 10.30 or 11, but I can't say exactly when, but I know he was there. She confirmed that the two slept in the same bed, stating, Dave never left the house that night, I'm sure of it. And Sarah said that Wednesday morning, her alarm went off at around 5.15 a.m. as usual, saying, I probably got out of bed by 5.30, and Dave is usually up and going by 6.15. I leave for work around 6.50, but I'm always running late and Dave would have dropped the kids off at the babysitter. Name? Phyllis Golding. Dave would have dropped the children off at Phyllis's house before heading into the bank. As they wrapped up the interview, it was apparent to the investigators that Sarah was more than ready to have them out of the apartment. They thanked her for her time, and then the two agents returned to the station to follow up and cross-reference with David, amid his own interview with Kenton Police Sergeant David Ayers and Fire Marshal Anderson. A few days later, investigators returned to the National Bank of Canton to speak with a few employees who had not been present on their last visit. ATF Special Agent Kenneth Kedzert and Special Agent Lawrence Nickel learned from Barbara Joan Westover much of what they had already been told. That Donna had been very distraught after her mother's death and of her struggles with the divorce from her husband John. But that Donna had not spoken to Joanne directly about her personal problems. But instead, like many others, Joanne had heard it through gossip and word of mouth. Miss Westover, who stated that she had known Donna for the previous five years, was an auditor who oversaw Donna's work up to nine times a year. She noted that Donna was very knowledgeable and that there had never been any problems with her work. On the day of the fire, she said, I was heading downstairs when I was told what was going on. I had run into Dave near the trust files. He told me that Sheila from upstairs had been expecting Donna to bring in the night deposit around 8.30, and when she didn't arrive, Sheila called him and asked him to go and check on Donna. He said he ran over to her place and saw her car in the garage. Dave said he tried to look in her windows but didn't see anyone, and that's when he went to use Pauline Newcomb's phone to call the police, and that's also when he'd heard something like a cane tapping on the wall. Dave said that Pauline said, something has happened, and he said he saw a small puff of smoke and got Pauline out of the house. He said he broke out a window and went inside and saw red flames or ambers, something like a chair sitting there, and then the fire came right at him. He said he singed his hair and that he burnt his center finger, Joanne added, holding up her own middle finger for the agents to see. He said they were both on the daybed. Did Mr. Haynes state that he saw the bodies himself on the daybed when he entered the apartment? 
Yes, I believe that is what he had told me. It was when he had opened the door. He also said the gas dial was going around real fast, and that if Donna and Justine had been in the back bedroom, he would have been able to get them out. Did he mention anything else, Miss Westover? No, not that I recall, but I remember he did point out a cut on his neck. The two agents then spoke with Kenneth Long, who stated that Donna had worked with him in accounts payable for a while, but that he was never a confidant of Donna's. However, he had heard through the grapevine that she was going through tough times. He also said that he had approached David to express his sympathies. Dave started telling me, he said, that when he first arrived at Donna's, he didn't think anything was wrong, not until he was in Miss Newcomb's and he heard a noise through the wall. Dave said he began begging on the wall trying to get someone's attention and that he then called the police. He said he went and forced open the front door but that he couldn't feel any heat. But the moment he stepped inside he saw a deep red glow like a chair that the fire flashed out at him. You see, Dave was the property manager for the house. So he was familiar with the building, he said, and decided to break out a window in the back bedroom. But Dave said when he reached in he couldn't find anyone. He also said the gas meter was making a lot of noise. Mr. Long, did Mr. Haynes mention seeing the bodies inside? No, I heard through others that Dawn and her daughter were found on the daybed in the living room, he said. But Dave never mentioned anything about the bodies. The agents then desired to speak with Heidi Hughes, but she was not at the bank that day. So Special Agent Kedzer called her up from a phone in the basement office. Miss Hughes stated on the phone that she worked for KPMG Pete Marwick Accounting in Peoria. She said that she had been auditing the trust department at the bank, and that that is how she had known Donna. I know she was looking for a new job, she said. Donna felt that Dave Haynes was holding her back from advancement. Miss Hughes, were you working at the bank the morning of the 13th, asked Agent Kedzer. I was. And what can you recall about that morning? Well, I remember when Donna was 10 minutes later, so some of the other employees became concerned. But it was not until later when I overheard Dave telling everyone how he had found the fire. And that's when I found out Donna was dead. I was in an adjacent office, and I remember Dave was sitting at Donna's desk. And what did you overhear Mr. Haynes saying? Well, he said, I looked into the house through the windows and knocked on the front door and didn't see anything. So I went to the older woman's apartment to make a phone call to the police to have them come open the door. I saw a trickle of smoke come through the wall and went back to Donna's apartment and saw the gas meter dial spinning really fast. I broke into what I guessed was her bedroom window, and then I busted open the front door and saw a red glow, which I assumed was a chair, and it burst into flames. Don and Justine were on the daybed in the living room, but I could have got them if they were in the bedroom. Do you recall if Mr. Haynes mentioned seeing Don and Justine on the daybed at the time he broke open the front door, or if he had later found out? I'm not really sure, I'm sorry. I do remember Dave's clothes smelled really badly of smoke, and I know he went home to change. Catherine Tabor was next. Miss Tabor said that she knew Donna from way back when she worked at the community bank in Canton back in 85. I remember around that time she had to go up to Wisconsin where she had gone to college to testify against someone. What can you tell us about that? Nothing really, I regret. I don't really know what that case was about. How well did you know Donna? Well enough to attend her wedding and wedding shower, I suppose, she said. Are you aware of the problems Donna was having with John? I know that John was not the only person to lose money in the divorce. John, his brother, and his father were all partners on the farm.
and I remember Donna told me that she was never allowed to see the financial figures. She actually had to have them subpoenaed, and her attorney Rod Weber, he had everything prepared, but Donna was really scared to sign and kept putting it off. What exactly was Donna afraid of? asked the agents. John. He was nuts. I remember once last summer, Donna was taking the afternoon off to go to the park with her daughter, and she had asked me to tell John in case he came by or called that she was busy and in the bathroom. Would Donna often speak to you about John? Oh yeah, she would always tell me when John was being an ass. Excuse my language. Had she mentioned John recently? No, not that I recall. Not in the past few weeks. But I know she only felt safe once she was locked in her apartment. She was terrified of him. John once threatened to kill his father, and his brother had to call the police to stop him. Miss Tabor, what else can you tell us about John? I know that he threatened Donna, and told her she would always be his wife. And can you tell us anyone whom Donna had been recently dating? Well, she dated Kenneth Owens back at the community bank when she worked there. And she dated David Haynes for a while, and uh, John Jaraco. He lived up in Chicago. And when she married Tompkins, Jaraco was still in the picture, I know that. And I know that Donna thought she should have probably stayed with Jaraco. He had lots of money. But in the end, she chose John. You said this Jaraco lives in Chicago? He used to, but I believe he is living down in Texas now, last I heard at least. And after her separation from John, Donna saw Terry Haynes for a while and Rod Franciscovich. He works over at Office Max in Peoria. He was really sweet to Donna. Bought her a boombox and coffee pot for Christmas. And what can you tell us about the morning of the 13th, Miss Tabor? Well, only that she didn't show up and Dave went looking for her. And that he called Hazel Brown from some woman's apartment. I didn't really know much until he returned later that day. And said he had singed his hair and I remember he smelled really bad like smoke. Had he spoken to Mr. Haynes that day about the fire? I didn't, but you might want to talk to Hazel Brown and Marilyn Riley. I believe they may have been around when Dave was talking about the fire. Someone did tell me that the fire marshal got on Dave for breaking a window, venting the fire. Are you aware of any problems Donna was having with the apartment? Any gas leaks or... Well, I remember Donna once had her stove looked at, but I'm not sure why. Agents also spoke with Jennifer McMillan. Miss McMillan stated that she met Donna around January of 91 at the National Bank, where they were both employed. I was responsible for Donna dating Terry Haynes, she said. I introduced him. Can you tell us when approximately you had made this introduction? Oh, it would have been last fall. And Terry invited her out to the bowling alley to watch him bowl. Soon after that, I asked if they were dating, and Donna said yes. That they had a few drinks, and that Terry asked her out. Can you explain in greater detail why it was you introduced the two? Well, I knew Terry was looking for someone to bartend at the Elks Club, and I knew Donna was struggling a bit and could use the extra money. I even offered to babysit for Justine. So Donna talked to Terry about the job and he hired her, but I believe that their first official date was at the Riverboat Casino in Peoria. Miss McMillan told agents that Donna had broken off the relationship with Terry at the beginning of December of 92. Donna stopped seeing him because Terry was still talking to his ex-wife. I guess she also heard that he was really into drugs and that scared her. If I would have known, Miss McMillan trailed off. Well, I guess he started calling her after she broke things off, trying to keep track of her. And Donna did her best to stay away from him, but, you know. What can you tell us about Donna's marriage to John Tompkins? Well, they were having problems for some time. I guess he had a nasty temper. And one day he even tried to hit her, but hit the door instead. I guess that was a turning point for Donna. That's when she left him and decided to get the divorce. Miss McMillan stated that she had started babysitting for Justine in October of 92 when Donna began working at the Elks. 
Mostly on Sunday, she said, but Donna didn't want John to know I was watching Justine. And why is that, Miss McMillan? Well, John once came to another sitter's house and took Justine without telling Donna. And he once called up the Elks and asked who was sitting for Justine on Sundays. But Donna refused to tell him. She didn't want him to know anything. When did you last babysit for Justine? Friday. The 8th of January? Yeah. Donna said she was going out that night with Rod. They had planned on going somewhere that evening, but ended up staying at Rod's and cooking supper on the grill. She was a bit late picking Justine up that night. By late, how late would you say? Oh, 15 or 20 minutes, not too late. But Justine was already asleep on the couch, and Donna was apologizing over and over again, saying that she and Rod had fallen asleep watching movies, and that she was so sorry. The thing that caught my attention was that Donna always gave me a few days' notice if she needed me to sit. But that morning, she had asked with no notice. It was no biggie, I had nothing else going on, so I said, sure, bring her on over anytime. Miss McMillan, what more can you tell us about John? Well, I know Donna didn't want John to know she was dating. What else can you tell us about John and the farm business? Oh. Well, he was having problems with the family. He had gotten into a fight with his brother and his parents. They had decided they were going to leave John out of the business from now on. They were fed up with him and his anger problems, his temper. And to be honest with you, I do believe he could have hired someone to kill Donna and Justine. I do believe he could have hired someone to kill Donna and Justine. We will leave it at that. Until next time, I am Corey Zimmerman. And this is Spoon River God. Spoon River Gothic is a production of Longbird Media in association with CZ Studio and Radio Verite. The show is produced by August Olson. Editing, directing, and producing by Corey Zimmerman. Audio mastering and engineering by E. Mastered. Research is done by Anne-Marie Cannon, Chelsea Mesa, and me, Jinra Illustrisimo. Spoon River Gothic is written and hosted by Corey Zimmerman. You can follow the show at czstudio.works and read the blog at spoonrivergothic.com. Show some love by leaving us a rating or a review on Spotify, iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And stay tuned for the next episode as we dive deeper into the Donald Bull case. Thank you for listening. This is Spoon River Gothic, narrative of a double homicide.